0: You're listening to the news on RTHK. The University of Hong Kong has been working on a new hepatitis B drug with the aim of freeing patients from lifelong medication. Currently, patients have to take pills continuously to prevent the viral infection from causing cirrhosis or even liver cancer. Professor Yun Man Fung leads the university's hepatology department.
1: This drug works quite differently from what we have right now because the current treatment actually just suppressed the virus to lower down the hepatitis B virus DNA. This drug actually lowered down what we call the virus antigen. In particular, for hepatitis B, we call this antigen called surface antigen. This antigen actually suppressed the immune cells. And that's why if we can have this drug to lower down the surface antigen, it removes the agents that suppressed the immune system.
0: A court in Belgium has begun hearing the cases of 10 men accused of involvement in Islamist bombings which killed 32 people in 2016. The attacks targeted the main airport and the metro in the capital, Brussels. The US Space Agency's next-generation crew capsule is heading back to Earth after making a close pass of the Moon. The Orion spaceship used the gravity of the Moon to propel it back towards Earth. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Amos.
2: Launched from Florida last month, NASA's Orion vehicle has had, so far, a highly successful outing. Engineers have lauded its performance, but they know a key objective lies ahead, landing it safely back on Earth. One last big burn on Orion's main engine, close to the moon, has put the craft on a path to come home at the weekend. It'll enter the atmosphere at 32 times the speed of sound. Its heat shield will reach 3,000 degrees Celsius. If Orion survives that, engineers will know it's ready to carry astronauts.
0: And at the World Cup in Qatar, Brazil have beaten South Korea 4 1 to go through to the quarterfinals, where they'll play Croatia, who earlier knocked out Japan on penalties after the school finished 1 1 after extra time. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
3: Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis, and a warm welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. The Times 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 6th of December. Here are the morning's business and finance headlines. Chinese stocks soared and the renminbi rose to a 12-week high against the dollar yesterday as authorities across the mainland further relaxed their strict zero-COVID rules. Cities including Shenzhen, Shanghai, Tianjin, Chengdu and Chongqing have scrapped the requirements for commuters to present PCR test results, to enter outdoor public venues and to travel on public transport. In Beijing, some residents are being allowed to quarantine at home rather than at a centralised quarantine facility if they test positive for COVID. The Kaishin Services Purchasing Managers Index in November dropped to 46.7 from 48.4 in October, well below economists forecasts. This was the third consecutive month of declines and it was the steepest contraction in the service sector since May on the mainland. In Hong Kong, the S&P Global PMI fell to 48.7 in November from 49.3 in October, that's the lowest reading since March. It was the third straight month of contraction in private sector activity amid rising COVID cases. Services activity in the US in November was stronger than expected, fueling concerns that the Fed will continue hiking rates. The ISM Purchasing Managers Index posted a reading of 56.5. That's the 30th consecutive month of growth. However, in a different measure... The S&P Global Services PMI came in at 46.2 for November, marking the fifth consecutive month of declining activity. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global and Mark Franklin at Manulife Investment Management. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesick.
0: Money Talk on RTHK old
3: Yesterday on Wall Street, U.S. stocks finished lower on worries over further aggressive Fed rate hikes after the U.S. services PMI unexpectedly rose. The S&P 500 slid 1.8% to settle at 3,999, with 95% of the companies in the index lower. The Dow fell 483 points, or 1.4%, to finish at 33,947 the Nasdaq Composite dropped 1.9% to end the day at 11,240. In Europe, the stock 600 index fell 0.4% and the UK's FTSE 100 climbed 0.1%. Hong Kong stocks surged to a three-month high as local governments on the mainland moved to relax COVID restrictions across the country. The Hang Seng Index powered 843 points higher, that's 4.5% to 19,518. The Tech Index soared 9.3%, taking its gains since the beginning of last week to 21%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 1.8% at 3,212. That's the highest close since September 1st. Catering stocks in Hong Kong rocketed higher, and other reopening stocks such as Macau Casino shares and airlines also rose. Trading on mainland China's stock exchanges will be suspended for three minutes at 10 o'clock Beijing time today as a mark of respect for former President Jiang Zemin, who died last week. In the commodities markets, oil prices were lower as concerns over Federal Reserve rate hikes overshadowed worries about a European Union ban on Russian crude and a Russian oil price cap of $60 per barrel, which is effective from today. Brent crude oil settled 3.4% lower at $82.68 a barrel. Dollar strength hits gold, which fell 1.7% to $1,769 an ounce. And the US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose 10 basis points to 3.59% following the better than expected ISM services data. And the US dollar, that rose helped by higher bond yields. The Japanese yen was almost 2% weaker at 136.7. The Euro is trading at $1.05. One British pound buys $1.22 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 47 cents. Offshore Yuan was the outperformer, jumping over 1% to a 12-week high. This morning, it's trading at 6.96 and a half versus the US dollar. And Bitcoin has slipped below $17,000 this morning to 16900 around Asia-Pacific stock markets. In Australia, the ASX 200 right now is down 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea down about three quarters of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 370 points for the Hang Seng this morning at the open. Okay. 8, 10 and a half, over in our Queensway studio this morning, we have Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Mark Franklin who is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Life Investment Management. Morning, Mark. Morning, Peter. As we heard there, uh, Chinese stocks have soared. The renminbi is at a 12-week high as authorities across the mainland further relax their strict zero-COVID rules. Investors have taken the latest easing as a sign that Beijing is pivoting away from its zero-COVID policy. Andrew, are they right to do so? Yes, I mean, I think uh,
4: the reality is that we know that China is going to open up, and the protests have probably brought forward the timetable on that. But I don't think it's going to be a smooth or straightforward pass. But you know, everybody's been underweight China for so long, or short China, that I think this, the current moves just really show short covering and uh, and uh, you know, starting to dip their finger, their toes in the water. To be honest.
3: It's a, it's a sudden change, isn't it? Because it was only a few weeks ago that the Chinese government was urging everyone to stay the course with the zero COVID approach. And at the uh, the National Congress, President Xi Jinping was stating these measures are, are here to stay. Um, it, it's all happened rather quickly.
4: Well, it's just the, the reaction to, you know, the, the public protests. And I think what's worried the most is these have been widespread protests with a common theme. Um, and the common theme to, seems to be that, you know, the government is taking too much of people's, individuals' rights and freedoms for granted. Um, you know, there have been a lot of cases of uh, buildings being locked down uh, by by people that have no real authority. You know, they're the lowest tier of the Chinese uh, party um uh, Organisation, And yet uh, they are taking away people's liberty, and that's just annoyed the general public.
3: Mark, as a, as a fund manager in investing in China, does this latest development and this latest news change your outlook towards China and, and your um, sort of allocations to China?
5: short answer is yes. So we we, we we look at this and say actually this creates a potential catalyst to combine with very depressed valuations. So up until now the valuations by themselves were not sufficient to take a more constructive stance. But now that we have a catalyst to envisage a slightly better cyclical economic outlook, not immediately but eventually, that gives you a bit more purpose in terms of applying capital to China related assets. The second factor that, ga- that gauges our thinking is that we have to then reassess what we think the inflation trajectory will be globally. Up until now, we've been focused solely on the West and the inflation dynamics there, both on the goods and the services side. And China's economy has largely been in hibernation because of zero COVID. If that gets reactivated, then that creates potentially a new inflation pulse, particularly around energy and commodities. Mm. And
3: do you go when, when you're investing? Do you look at now those reopening type um, plays like uh, like you know delivery companies, food delivery companies,
5: um, like the airlines, like the
3: casino stocks? Are those the sort of
5: areas that you would look at? I mean, first of all, we look at the kind of asset classes that we might be interested in and what kind of risk reward there is. So one area which we think has been very attractive now is is is, is China high yield credit, and and, and it's mm. very weighted towards the real estate sector. And so as you can imagine, uh, spreads have widened considerably this year because the real estate sector has come under significant pressure. If there's a sense that via direct policy attention towards the real estate sector and the broader economic relief that comes from removing very harsh restrictions on zero COVID, that that re-engages people's appetite to invest in real estate again, then you're left with very high risk premium and a trade which is very leveraged to this China narrative.
3: And it's a very risky bet, isn't it? So presumably you've got to be have a lot of confidence that these latest measures are really going to stabilise the property sector.
5: Well, First of all, you've got to take the view is, does the market think that? Uh, And that's your first trigger. If you believe that the market will move in that direction, and that creates the first part of the return opportunity. Then the second question, as you rightly say, is will there be a genuine fundamental economic consequence for these measures or or the expectations? And that's something that is still probably a bit too premature to conclude with any conviction at this point. Andrew, it's going to be a bumpy ride, though, isn't it, going
3: forward? Because um, there's a high risk that we're going to have a surge in cases that could well over some of the healthcare uh, facilities. It's not going to be easy, is it, going forward for investors?
4: No, I think that's very right. And I think, you know, you saw Ali Health up 18% yesterday on the basis that the infrastructure in in China is very poor on the health side. We've already seen people looking to buy their own ventilators in case their parents have to be committed to hospital on the fear that there won't be enough beds. And that's that's likely to be an ongoing process. But I think, just going back to the earlier point, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about the property sector is the fact that it's in line with government policy. Government has realised that the property sector is in trouble and does need relief. Uh, And I think that's going to be the key thing for investors going forward, is finding sectors that are in line with government policy. And there's still no clarity on on those delivery companies and the e-commerce. Yes, we've seen a sort of, um, you know, we've seen Alibaba possibly coming back towards the fold, but we haven't seen clarity from government that they are actually going to support those or that they're not going to tap them for further donations to public funds or something like that. And, and I think investors will be looking very carefully at what is the, what is the key China policies and, and to make sure that their investing is, al- is aligned with what the government wants to see happen.
3: If you want to invest in the property sector, you've got to be very selective, haven't you? Because it, it's clear that even with these support measures not all of the companies in that sector are going to survive.
4: That's true. I mean, I mean, reality says that there should be more consolidation within the sector. Uh, the problem is, though, that the, 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 the pre-sales uh, and the local government support for some of these companies ha- has made them untenable. Uh, and that's going to be a real problem because the government really doesn't have the money and the local governments don't have the money to bail these companies out. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you know, they are... You know, being left hung out to dry. And I think that's why we haven't seen a clear policy from Evergrande is the fact that it's actually a very complicated problem that really needs central government support.
3: And what about the economy? There was a report on Monday that showed that nearly 200 cities have high-risk districts covering about 75% of China's GDP. So will the, this easing of restrictions, what will it mean for the economy? Are we going to see a swift economic rebound or is it going to be more protracted and prolonged?
5: Yeah. <laughs> It's going to be more protracted and and, and long in duration and and for the very simple reason is that China is a huge country uh, with with complex um, conditions when it comes to healthcare provision and therefore at the local level governments are not going to have a let it rip approach. They simply cannot. So what they're going to do is trial in certain areas um, a faster rolling back of measures but then have to retighten potentially selectively if the healthcare system, the capacity becomes overly strained. So what that means is that I think that we can take a 12 month to 24 month view and say the direction of travel is is upwards, but it's, it's going to be somewhat of a zigzag, and and markets are going to be somewhat confused by that day to day, week to week, month to month.
3: And and this is going to have global implications, isn't it? Because if more people get sick and are hospitalised, they can't go to work. That could potentially result in factory closures because they can't run at full capacity, and then in turn, um, it's going to uh, affect global supply chains.
5: I think we've already endured that kind of experience because of zero COVID policy. So yes, there will continue to be disruptions to supply chains and particularly the export industries. But that's already coming from a very very low base. So it's not entirely clear that that will be a fresh negative. Mm. One thing that you are looking for though is is the extent to which China reengages additional marginal demand for key commodities and across the commodities complex we're already facing significant structural shortages because of underinvestment or government policy in in certain western economies that disincentivizes investment and i think you've also got to remember that you know
4: china you know used to be the manufacturing center for the world the fact is that the world is looking at a slowdown as well so that could actually help china in in meaning that there isn't the huge uptake in demand that would leave it in a in a very awkward position, as as was said on, from Mark on the on the commodity side, but I think the long-term underinvestment in commodities is going to be a problem, as is the greening of of energy because we just haven't invested enough in green energy but that we are, means that we're still going to need the coal uh, and the oil resources in the short term or look at reopening nuclear power stations um, because of underinvestment in other green fuels in the meantime.
3: We, we did have some data out um, yesterday. We had the kaishin Services PMI. Uh, it dropped to 46.7, uh, quite a way below economist forecasts of 48. That's the third um, consecutive month of declines, also the steepest contraction in the service sector since May. But are, are you seeing any signs that maybe um, some of these economic indicators are bottoming out?
4: I don't think we are, really. I mean, the trouble is that because there are going to be selective lockdowns in certain areas, and, and as Mark was saying, for certain sectors of the economy, it, it's going to be very difficult for those uh, those numbers to really show a bottom until China has actually got either its immunisation up to a sufficient level that the economy can be opened up fully, or um, or it's, it's just had to endure.
3: Well, we've got the December Politburo meeting coming up. Presumably now there's been this policy change on both covid and property we really need to watch that quite carefully don't we to see what sort of guidelines they're basically going to give now for for the economy for for next year
5: Yeah, I think that the main emphasis in terms of economic projection will be at the March meetings which conclude the 13th MPC cycle Uh, and there you'll probably see some longer-term economic directives, particularly around, let's say, combining technology in the industrial complex, enhancing China's military power projection, um, leveraging and harnessing the the technological innovation of the economy for, let's say, the the central government's benefit. But in the interim, what what we'll probably be looking for is, is a reiteration of this shift in messaging around COVID, namely the importance of vaccination, namely that current strains are much less severe than the original strains, and trying to encourage people to get out there and start um, producing and being more productive economic um, outcomes for, for, for the wider economy.
4: I think you've also got to, to remember that China is very much about saving face for Xi Jinping. You know, he has doubled down on this policy and is, has to try and find an exit. And I think a key thing on that, as, as was mentioned in the Goldman Sachs report recently, is the, uh, is the WHO uh, downgrading COVID so that China can downgrade COVID and mm-hmm. that can make it more acceptable. They've already accepted that Omicron is less, less uh, lethal than the previous one, So, you know, they're, they're trying to change the, uh, the, the the narrative on this and still save face. And I think that's that's going to be crucial for them. And that's going to be another hurdle in them opening up swiftly or in a, in a sort of straight line.
3: And what about Hong Kong? We had the s and Global PMI that fell to 48.7 in November, down from 49.3 in October. It's the lowest reading since March. It's the third straight month of contraction in private sector activity. Both output and new orders shrank at a faster pace. There was some good news. Export sales declined by the least in six months, and buying activity did grow modestly, and sentiment was also upbeat for the first time in four months. Presumably that's the key, isn't it? Looking forward with this news from mainland China, um, can we be a bit more optimistic about Hong Kong?
5: Potentially, yes. Obviously, the Hong Kong economy is very different to the mainland economy. It's a very open economy. It's not self-sufficient by any means, and therefore a large uh, amount of its economic activity, particularly around domestic consumption, will revolve around the ability to to see Chinese mainland tourists coming into Hong Kong, and also Hong Kong businesses that that operate across the border being able to get people backwards and forwards as well. So if China indeed makes sufficient progress around opening up and, and, and pivoting towards a more normal um, healthcare uh, set of policies and outcomes and that will definitely benefit the hong kong economy longer term but the the second point as well is fiscal sustainability we saw that paul chan the financial secretary highlighted again an increase in the projection for the fiscal deficit i think 100 billion dollars for 2022 you know a lot of this excess spending has come through covid and pandemic control measures and if they feel emboldened and let's say with sufficient support from the mainland to start normalizing there as well then it creates, let's say, a more sustainable fiscal situation, which then enables the government to deploy investment in areas which are, let's say, more growth-oriented rather than pandemic management-related. Mm. Andrew, what are your thoughts about Hong Kong? Yes, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, I mean, we
4: still need the uh, the, the border restrictions to, to be removed so that we can uh, do what we have historically done best, which is, you know, market China. But we've also got to have our own restrictions removed so that business can actually operate... As efficiently as it has historically, I mean, quarantining for three days is better than it, you know two weeks, obviously. But businessmen will want to come here for one or two days, be in and be out, uh, and be about their you know about their business elsewhere. So we've really still got to see a long way of of that reopening take place, and hopefully uh, that will happen quite quickly.
3: Thank you both very much. You heard there, Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Mark Franklin, who's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management. Money talk
2: on Radio 3.
3: The time's coming up to 8.25. On the phone from Tokyo is journalist and author William Pessick. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. So that what is the impact of China relaxing its zero COVID restrictions and, and the economy now hopefully uh, starting to reopen? What impact is that going to have on Japan?
6: Well, you've already seen some cautious optimism here from the government. Um, I traveled to Kyoto about 10 days ago. And this time of year, you've got the changing of the leaves dynamic, which is gorgeous. And normally you get millions of Chinese tourists coming over to Kyoto this time of year for that. So, there is a lot of optimism that China, with China reopening, Japan will get quite a bounce in terms of tourism. It's one of their mm. their most important economic engines at the moment. The yen is weak, so this is the perfect moment for you know millions of mainlanders to pour into Japan and spend lots of money. But the caution reflects the uh, the concerns that we've kind of heard a bit of this before, haven't we? I mean, since since January at least, there's been these pivots, these moments of. You know, dynamic zero COVID, and the signals we're getting from China right now seem quite different than they were in January. Of course, I recognize that, but I do think this is still a moment of trust but verify. You know, plan for the best, but also you know remember that if COVID numbers perk up in 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 China, things could open up more slowly than hoped. So, Japan is hopeful, um, but not betting on. I should say.
3: And of course, it's good for its exports, isn't it? Uh, it's helped also by the weaker yen, um, as well. Presumably, um, this is a main export market for uh, for for Japan. Um, that those companies are going to benefit.
6: Absolutely. I mean, any you know any jump in, in in Chinese GDP will be felt in Japan. Arguably, before any other economy in Asia, save maybe Taiwan or South Korea. So, yes, I mean, there is a lot of optimism that in twenty twenty three. We could see more of a bounce. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, China's economy has sort of flatlined in 2022 for the most part, and the export uh, lines from Japan to China kind of bear that out. So, if you do see a you know two percent, five percent, or ten percent increase in you know commerce between Japan and China in the year ahead, that's a very good thing for Japan. And as you mentioned, the the weak yen is part of that. I mean, Japan is it's complicated because we're suddenly getting inflation thanks to the weak yen. So there are some concerns about overheating here, which sounds ironic, given the fact that you and I have been talking about Japan and deflation for so long. Mm. So it is complicated. But any any signs of life in the Chinese economy will put a kind of spring in Japan's step for 2023. Absolutely.
3: I mean, this uh, rising inflation is putting increasing pressure on the Bank of Japan, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about their stance several times with you on this program. But we've got a new Bank of Japan board member now openly calling for a policy um, review. Is the Bank of Japan going to have to yield fairly soon now and start uh, talking about raising rates?
6: I think they will have to, because what's interesting is you know, Japan for, for you know, 20 years now has favored a weaker yen, weaker yen. The yen can never be too weak for Japan except for <laughs> the last six months. Suddenly they've realized, wow, this has gone too far. And the BOJ does need some kind of recalibration. You know, in your previous segment, you were talking about how Xi Jinping needs to save face. The BOJ needs to save face as well. But if you have some, some fresh blood in the ranks of policymaking and also, uh, Governor Kuroda will be stepping down in March of next year. He'll be retiring. You could get some new leadership. So yes, there is a need for a, at least a rethinking of how the Bank of Japan has been interacting with the economy because Again, we're getting suddenly we're getting inflation faster than we ever expected. And the BOJ looks, they've got this kind of deer in the headlights crouch at the moment. And it's just not very, uh, on. not very promising.
3: Yeah, the thing is, though, isn't it? Even if rates rise in Japan, we're talking about them going from negative to may, maybe zero, maybe positive a quarter of a percent compared to what's happening elsewhere in the world. It's minuscule.
6: True, but everything is relative. I mean, Japan's debt is basically double the size of the economy. And everyone here owns Japanese government bonds, you know, pension funds, investors, retirees, the government, banks, companies. So any uptick in Japanese yields would be pretty catastrophic for the economy. So as long as it's an orderly increase that people can expect and brace for, that's fine. But if we suddenly wake up on a Monday morning and Japanese rates have, you know, jumped by, you know, mm-hmm. two or three basis points, that that really does shake things up here. So it'll be an interesting 2023. You know, we, we haven't had to worry about the Japanese bond market for a long time. We'll see. William, thank
3: you very much indeed. Sally, we've run out of time. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesek. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. In Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is flat. The SX200 in Australia off 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea down about a third of a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 370 points lower later on this morning. Before I go, I have some personal news for you. I'm going to be taking a break from Money Talk for the next seven and a half weeks while I take my first holiday in three years. I'll be back on the show on the 30th of January after the festive holidays and Chinese New Year. Money Talk will continue in my absence with James Ross, Andrew Work and Richard Harris all filling in and they'll bring you daily business and finance updates each weekday morning, starting with Andrew Work tomorrow. And in the meantime, may I take this opportunity to wish you a happy christmas new year and lunar new year see you next at the end of january coming up after the news is back chat with jim gould and ada wong the weather forecast mainly cloudy cool in the morning Uh, maximum temperature is going to be around 19 degrees it is going to be remain cool but with sunny periods tomorrow and then become fine in the following few days it's 16 degrees right now 73 percent relative humidity
0: Time's coming up to 8.31.
3: Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news.
0: An engineer says the government should get involved in the latest investigation over a train service disruption rather than leaving it to the MTR Corporation to investigate internally. During yesterday's morning's rush hour, hundreds of passengers had to abandon a train and walk along the tracks. That was the second time in less than a month, following a partial derailment in November after a train hit trackside equipment that had come loose. Louis Zito said the latest incident the incident was less serious, as it appeared that a cable supplying power between the carriages had broken.
6: This incident, as compared to the previous one, this one is a bit less because it only disconnected the wire connection. If the whole coupler is disconnected, then it will be dangerous because the two train will be cut off. This time, is the connection, that was the cable supplying the electricity to the car, is torn. They should have a checking after the out day of each day. Before the, the train started up. So, I think they might miss some procedure during the checking of
2: this train.
0: The University of Hong Kong has been working on a new hepatitis B drug with the aim of freeing patients from lifelong medication. Currently, patients have to take pills continuously to prevent the viral infection from causing cirrhosis or even liver cancer. Professor Yun Man Fung leads the university's hepatology department.
1: This drug works quite differently from what we have right now because the current treatment actually just suppressed the virus to lower down the hepatitis B virus DNA. This drug actually lowered down what we call the virus antigen. In particular, for hepatitis B, we call this antigen called surface antigen. This antigen actually suppressed the immune cells. And that's why if we can have this drug to lower down the surface antigen, it removes the agents that suppressed the immune system.
0: The Russian Defence Ministry has blamed Ukraine for explosions at two air bases, both hundreds of kilometres inside Russia. It said Ukrainian drones caused the blasts which killed three people. The ministry's spokesman is Igor Konyshenkov.
2: As a result of the fall and explosion of the wreckage of jet drones at Russian airfields, the hulls of two aircraft were slightly damaged. Three Russian technical servicemen who were at
3: the airfield were fatally wounded. Another four who were wounded were taken to medical institutions where they were provided with all the necessary medical assistance.
0: Hours later, Russia carried out 17 missile strikes against Ukraine, once again hitting electricity infrastructure. The Ukrainian state energy firm says there will now be emergency power outages across the country. The US Space Agency's next-generation crew capsule is heading back to Earth after making a close pass of the Moon. The Orion spaceship used the gravity of the Moon to propel it back towards Earth. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Amos.
2: Launched from Florida last month, NASA's Orion vehicle has had, so far, a highly successful outing. Engineers have lauded its performance, but they know a key objective lies ahead, landing it safely back on Earth. One last big burn on Orion's main engine, close to the moon, has put the craft on a path to come home at the weekend. It'll enter the atmosphere at 32 times the speed of sound. Its heat shield will reach 3,000 degrees Celsius. If Orion survives that, engineers will know it's ready to carry astronauts.
0: And the Swiss-based mining company Glencore says it will pay $180 million to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to cover corruption claims. It's the latest in a series of similar cases, and Glencore has agreed to pay more than $1.6 billion in fines this year, and in May the firm admitted to bribing officials in several African countries. Finally the pioneering US tennis coach Nick Bollettieri has died, he was 91, and worked with some of the most successful players in the modern game, including